There we go. Good morning again. There we go. All right. Sound like a record player. Broken one. Well, a few weeks ago, we started this sermon series on uh, the book of Philippians that we've called Joyful. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. So if you have your Bibles or version Bible app, I want to invite you to turn there. As you can probably tell, we are slowly and methodically working our way through this book of the Bible. I think this is week five, and we're not yet out of chapter one. So uh, we're going to do that today. We'll close out chapter one, and, and chapter two, uh, which we'll start next week, is, is just a sweet, sweet section of scripture, which I'm looking forward to getting into that. So uh, why don't I read the passage? Let me do that. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. This is the Apostle Paul. He is in prison in Rome, and he's writing to a church at Philippi that he had planted, started 10 or so years prior, 12 years prior. And uh, he is in prison, as I mentioned, in Rome, and he's writing this letter to encourage this young church. Just one thing, Paul wrote, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, Contending together for the faith of the gospel and not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Let me pray. God, thank you for this word, your word. And thank you, God, that you use it to change us. So we pray for that this morning. We ask, God, that you will move according to your will and by your Holy Spirit. Jesus, if we don't yet know you, would you reveal yourself to us in these next 30 minutes or so? God, if we are walking in you, if we are in Christ, if we are following you, draw us closer to yourself. If we've backslid in any way, God, call us back to you. And show us, Jesus, that we need you. We need to repent and turn to you. God, you are good, and you are faithful, and we praise you. Amen. Well, early on in my Christian journey, I thought Christianity, kind of following Jesus, was kind of an addendum to my life, like an add-on to my life. So so what I want to do is I want to kind of explain this, and I'm going to show this to you as well, but like most of us, I thought my life was kind of segmented and compartmentalized. There was my life, and then there was everything else, each with its kind of own category. 
Now, I made a drawing for you, and believe it or not, I almost went to art school after high school, but there's, there's a drawing for you. And this is kind of how I thought my life looked at 18, 19, 20 years old. There was my life, church, fun, friends, money, family, job, school, Jesus, whatever else. That's kind of what my life looked like. That's what I thought my life looked like even as a young Christian. Everything had its kind of place. Now notice like the circle of life, they're kind of in the middle and, and everything is kind of influencing it or everything is kind of pointing back to it. Now, over time, what I realized, and I hope that you will realize this morning, if you've not already, I learned that living in such a way is not biblical. And it is the complete antithesis or opposite to what Jesus and how Jesus called us to live our lives. See, in reality, following Jesus is my life, He's it. And the same is true for you. See, everything else in my life should be shaped, changed, and if needed, and if needed, let go of, so that I will be enabled to mature in Christ. I've illustrated that for you as well. So, the reality is our lives should look more like that. There's Jesus, and Jesus shapes everything in our lives. Now, I'm not going to ask us to raise our hands right now because my hunch is some of us would be a little embarrassed. But how many of us, even as Christians, would say our lives look like that? My hunch is for a lot of us, our lives are going to look a little bit more like illustration one. And if you're stuck in that place, believe me, I understand. I was there for many years as well. But what I want to challenge you with this morning, I want to exhort you with this morning is, don't stay there. That's not Bible-based Christianity. That's not the Christianity that Jesus invited us to be a part of. The reality is, illustration one, Rachel, if you could throw it up there one more time, that's a sign of Christian immaturity, not maturity. See, it's easy, it is so easy to see Jesus as an add-on, as an add-on, an addendum. But if he is truly our Lord, Lord, if he is truly king over our lives, then reality is he should have dominion and power over every single area of our lives. So we've got to fight against the temptation to see following Jesus as just one more thing. As just one more thing. The reality is, following Jesus is the thing. He's the thing. And everything else in life should be subservient. That is, everything else in our lives should be serving Him in some way. So that's why there are probably some things in our lives that we need to let go of because in no way, shape, or form are they serving Jesus or benefiting us in our Christian maturity. Amen? So for Paul, everything was all about Jesus and he wanted the Philippians to live in that way as well. Now remember, I've said this time and again, week after week, but remember the Apostle Paul is in prison when he wrote this letter. And even as a prisoner, not of Rome, but he says as a prisoner in Christ, his life is still being shaped by Jesus. And he's still making Jesus famous even while he's in prison. 
So through his God-given words, he's challenging the Philippians, and he's challenging us as well. And here's the big idea. Jesus is not another thing in your life. Jesus is the thing in your life. He's it. And, and I've said this before in, in some way, shape, or form, you know, over the time that some of you have been here. But, but if you look at Jesus as just another thing, then Christianity will never make sense to you. If Jesus is just another thing, then when your mother or your mother-in-law, as Selena shared a few minutes ago, is going through cancer and is nearing death, if you just view Jesus as just another thing, then her suffering and eventual death will make no sense to you. And you'll wonder, Jesus, don't I deserve better than this? Well, look at what happened to our King and our Lord that we serve. He suffered, was crucified, and put to death for us. And we expect better than him? Well, we got to slow our roll. The good and the better is coming when Christ returns or when you meet him in glory upon your death. And that's where it all makes sense. Amen? All right, I got to keep moving here. But look again at verse, look, at, look again at the first half of verse 27. The Apostle Paul says, just one thing. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, I'm going to unpack that here in a minute. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, before we go any further, I need to define the gospel. Because these, these folks and these theologians and stuff and these, these practitioners that study churches are finding one of the reasons why Christianity is suffering in the United States is, is because we don't understand the gospel. And the gospel, believe it or not, is simply Jesus living the perfect, righteous, and sinless life that you can never live. You hear me say this every week, but this is the gospel. And then his atoning death on the cross, he died for all of our sins. And his resurrection conquered death and hell. That's the gospel. That's good news. That's what gospel means. So Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection gives you life and is redeeming this world. Got that? That's the gospel. That's what we cling to as Christians. All the other stuff is great, but that is the primary focus. That is the thing that we cling to. Not just his death, not just his perfect life, and not just his resurrection, but all three. That's the gospel. The gospel, the work of Jesus, all of it is what sets us free and gives us life. The gospel is what changes lives. The gospel helps us realize that there is more than this world has to offer. The gospel gives us more than this world has to offer. That's why, remember last week, the apostle Paul could write, as he's sitting in prison, Wanting to die and be with Jesus, I long to depart with you and be with Christ, which is far better. See, he could write that and he could live that because he knew Jesus was better and the gospel is better. So Paul desired to be with Jesus because he knew he wasn't a citizen of this world, but a citizen of heaven. Here's where we're coming back to verse 27. See, his life, as great as it was here on earth, was only temporary. He knew that. 
Again, if we're only living for this world as a Christian, pity us. Paul knew his life, as great as it was on earth, was only temporary. He knew in light of eternity, life in the here and now was kind of like a layover, right? You're flying somewhere, you got a quick stop, you look out the window, this is a nice place to be, but I can't wait to get to my eventual destination. That's how Paul viewed the world. Maybe we should too. So here in verse 27, what Paul is essentially explaining to the Philippians is saying, he's saying, like me, like me, you too are citizens of heaven. Listen, church at Philippi, you're citizens of heaven just like I am. And being a citizen of heaven and being with Jesus is so much better than being a citizen of Rome. See, the the city of Philippi, I mentioned this probably a few weeks ago, but was a colony of the Roman Empire. Big bad deal. Akin to the United States, let's say, 2,000 years ago. And the Philippian citizens were proud to be a part of Rome. I'm going to step on some toes here in a minute. Just warning you, okay? Just sending it out there. See, nationalism, you could look at this in history. Nationalism was a part and paramount, vital in the Roman Empire. But nationalism for the Philippian Christians was dangerous. Dangerous. See, living in Philippi as a Roman citizen had a lot of advantages. But living as a citizen of heaven, I hope you know this, has far more advantages. See, we live, don't we, in an amazing country. I don't want to live anywhere else. I'll be honest with you. I know I make jokes about moving to Panama and stuff, but there's a lot of bugs there and it's really humid. So let's be, I'm never going, right? But we live in an amazing country. We have countless advantages in this country. And just the whole complaining about wearing masks shows that, okay? We have so much freedom. We have innumerable resources living in Connecticut. We know that because we get taxed out the wazoo and we're still here. But as citizens of heaven, our pride, follow me here, please. As citizens of heaven, our pride should be Christ-centered and not in any way centered on American nationalism. And believe it or not, that has infiltrated the church and it has hurt us in a bad way. And in some ways and at some times, that's why the outside world, the watching world, cannot take us seriously as Christians. Because we've mixed the two too much. See, kingdoms on earth rise and fall. Only the kingdom of God will reign for eternity. No one in their wildest dreams 2,000 years ago thought the Roman Empire was going to fall. No one. And now it's just a piece of history. And see, notice that the Apostle Paul wrote that as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel 
of Christ. In other words, it is all about the gospel. So if anything in our lives is in some way trumping the gospel, we need to check ourselves and see what and who we're actually following. See, as a citizen of heaven, like the Apostle Paul, Jesus should be, again, the thing. Our lives and everything we do should point to the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. In other words, Christians should live a life that is honoring to God. See, it matters, Christian, how you live your life. It matters where your money goes. It matters what you do even when you're at school. It matters how you treat your coworkers or your boss. This is going to maybe throw a few of you off, but the reality is it's true. The greatest threat to the modern church is not the world. The greatest threat to the modern church is not the sinner outside these walls or the blasphemer. The greatest threat to the church is us. It is. It is Christians who live for everything but Jesus. That's the greatest threat. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Jesus is the thing. He's the main thing. He's the only thing. Live your life in such a way that Jesus will look at you when you die or when he returns, which I'm hoping will be this afternoon, and he will say, Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant. Now you deal with that right now as you will. But my challenge for you right now, and even for myself, and even this week as I prepared this sermon is, if he were to come this afternoon, would he say that to me? Would he say that to you? It's getting a little real up in here now, isn't it? And this is where we get a little uncomfortable. Pastor, can't you give me one of those topical sermons where you talk about how I need to be happy? Five steps to a great marriage or whatever it is? I can, and I do sometimes, but you need this. And so do I. This is the gospel. And this will change our lives. The five steps, good for a couple weeks, but then you forget about it. You need Jesus. And so do I. See, in the second half of verse 27 and verse 28, what Paul does is, he says, listen, see, we got to, sometimes, you know, when we're reading scripture, we've got to slow down a little bit. And we've got to actually follow the train of thought that God has given us in his word. And we even see that in this passage. As you look at verse 27 and you look at verse 28, Paul actually talks about what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. What it looks like to progress spiritually. He actually gives us some explanation of what that is. Look again at the passage. Whether I come and see you or am absent... I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. 
This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. Now, I want to unpack this. There are four descriptions right there that Paul gives. Four things that he outlines in those verses that reveal to us what it looks like to pursue a life worthy of the gospel. If Jesus is not just another thing, but the thing. The first thing is this. Paul hoped to hear that the Philippians, you saw this, I would imagine, right away. He hoped to hear that the Philippians were standing firm in one spirit. The phrase that he used here was a metaphor used to describe a soldier that was to stay in place regardless of the battle that is going on around him. So what Paul is saying is, as you're being attacked from the outside, or maybe even from the inside, stay in place. Stand firm in the faith that you have. The winds of the world are going to blow. Are you going to lose balance? Are you going to sway to the left or to the right? He's saying, stand firm. Now, there's a similar idea in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, a passage that a lot of you probably really enjoy and really like. It's it's the passage of putting on God's full armor, the armor of God, right? Talks about the helmet, the breastplate, the sword, all those cool things, right? Verse 13, look at what Paul says here to the church at Ephesus. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared in everything to take your stand. You got your full armor on. You should be ready for everything that's coming at you. And as you're standing there and it's hitting you, keep standing. You're going to be okay. You got Jesus. He's with you. But man, sometimes we take those blows and, and we doubt. And we start pulling the armor off. And once you do that, you're done. <laughs> all right? See, with all of the struggles, temptations, and sins of life, to live a life worthy of the gospel, we have to stand firm. You have to. At the end of the day, what's your other option, Christian? Go back to the way you used to live? How'd that go for you? See, Jesus is worth living for and he's worth dying for. So that's the first thing that Paul shows. This is what a a life worthy of the gospel looks like. It, It looks like standing firm. And then he says, here's the second thing. Whether I see you or not, I hope to know that you are standing firm in one spirit. In one accord. See, the Christian, ooh, this is going to challenge some of us. The Christian who is progressing spiritually, that is living a life worthy of the gospel, pursues unity with other Christians. Unity with other Christians. One spirit in one accord means that the individual Christians are placing their personal preferences to the side for the sake of and the common good of the church. See, again, this letter was written to a church. When Lydia, or the 15, 16-year-old girl, she would have been in her mid-20s at this point, received this letter, when the 
Roman jailer received this letter. Remember, they were the first kind of converts in Philippi, the first kind of members of the church. When they received this letter, you know what they would have done? They wouldn't have taken it home like we do and study and, and drink our little coffee and have our quiet time with the Lord. It's good. You better be doing that, I hope. Not knocking it. But what I'm saying is, back then, contextually, what would have happened? When they received this letter, you know the first place of where it would have gone? To the church. They would have gathered everybody together like this in the morning, and they would have said, the apostle Paul, our guy, wrote us a letter. And he would have read it. She would have read it to all of them. See, unity, being together, community. See, true unity comes from the Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of kind of theologians and and scholars that believe that one spirit should actually, that spirit there should be capitalized. They believe what Paul was actually communicating is to, to truly be following Jesus and maturing in him and living a life worthy of the gospel, then you're actually pursuing the spirit and the spirit is in you because there is only one spirit, right? And oh, by the way, guess what? The spirit, look at this in 1 Corinthians 14.33, for God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace as in all the meetings of God's holy people. So true unity comes from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does not bring confusion or division in the life of a church. And when there's confusion and division, guess what? It ain't from the Holy Spirit. That's biblical. Not only here, but elsewhere. Now, if we remain in Christ, that is, following Him and keeping Him as the thing in our lives, the Holy Spirit will bring unity. Individually, if we're pursuing Jesus, there will be harmony when we come together as a church. But too often, though, this happens, man, it happens. It's happening all over the place right now. Too often, though, Christians fight one another. That's the wrong battle. I had tons of scripture in here, and we didn't have the time to get to it this morning. But listen, the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not. It's against the principalities and the spirits not of this world. Of darkness. See, Christians engaging in friendly fire, it weakens our witness to the world and clearly shows that we are not living lives worthy of the gospel. Remember Jesus' words in John 13? Before I read the passage, I need to kind of explain what's happening here. Jesus is preparing to be crucified. He's preparing to do the work and the will of God. He washes the disciples' feet, even Judas. I would I would have broken his toes. <laughs> Not Jesus. He washes the disciples' feet. He then speaks of Judas's betrayal. And then he gives his followers a new command. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Everyone will know. 
you are my disciples. See, Paul pursued that type of love and unity. So you've got to, again, follow his train of thought here. If Christians love one another, if we're loving one another, if we're standing firm in one spirit and in one accord, that is, united together, then, then we will contend together for the faith of the gospel. You following that? Because then the gospel will be central. Not everything else. And that's the third description of living Christian life worthy of the gospel. So again here, Paul is, is using the, the imagery rather of a group of soldiers engaged in a battle against a common threat. So they're standing firm, they're together, and they're contending to win. In the same way, the Christian contends together for the faith of the gospel. So pursuing Jesus and walking in the Spirit preserves and builds up the church. The mission of the church and Christians is to take the gospel to the world, to make disciples that make disciples. That's our mission. But so often we're fighting against one another. Or we're just so focused on our own wants and desires that we don't concern ourselves with the primary cause that Jesus gave us as believers in Christ. Here's the final description. Paul said, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. So the Philippians face some sort of opposition from the people outside of the church. We don't know exactly who their opponents were. We've kind of lost that in history, but it seems like they were Roman citizens that rejected Christianity. See, as a Roman colony... As I said a few minutes ago, the Philippian citizens would have been required to bow down to the emperor, Caesar. You're our God, Caesar, not the Christians. See, the Christians in Philippi knew that only Jesus is Lord, only Jesus is God, not the emperor. We're not bowing down to Caesar, not any world ruler, only Jesus So if it is only Jesus, if we are living lives worthy of the gospel like the people in Philippi, guess what? We're going to deal with opposition. But you got to do so fearlessly. It's going to come. People will not like you because you're a Christian. John 15, 20, remember the word I spoke to you, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me. They will also persecute you. That's from Jesus. The one we're following. Now you may have noticed there's this parenthetical statement. I do need to address it, but it's in the second half of verse 28. Paul mentioned that we should not fear our opponents. And then he said, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. Now, this is not a politically correct statement, so I'll step on those toes as well. 
there is a real hell. And those that oppose Jesus, and I'll even take it another step further, those that oppose Jesus and those that do not surrender their lives to Jesus will spend eternity there. And that's in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus' words, not mine. See, the crazy thing about Christianity is Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. It's both. And you may have heard me say this before, but there are a lot of paradoxes in the Christian faith, if you haven't noticed that before. Jesus says this, but then he also says this. I read this in the Old Testament, but then I see this in the New Testament. What do I do? So Jesus has this free offer, right? It's the free offer of the gospel. It's the free offer of forgiveness, of salvation. That's totally inclusive. It's based entirely on the work of Christ, on his grace and his love for his people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3.23. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. So your sin doesn't prevent you from meeting Jesus. Acknowledgement of your sin is a good thing. Because once you acknowledge your sin, then you see your need for Jesus. So it's totally inclusive, right? But it's also exclusive. Because believing in Jesus, not only in your mind, but also in your actions with how you live your life and the person and work of Jesus is vital. You can't be a Christian without believing in your mind and then also in how you live your life. But not everyone approves of that message, right? So in that way, it's exclusive. Because Jesus is the thing, there will be opposition. But the opposition, we know this, don't we? Like, if you're at all concerned about the world right now, read the Bible. We know how it ends. The book of Revelation tells us plain and simple. Now we can get caught up in all the thousand years and the seven years and what's the deal with the flying horses and all this craziness. But at the end of the day, we know what happens. Jesus wins. He wins. We're good. I don't know. Yeah, my voice really got dropped there. But with that said, right, now here's, here's what we got to be careful, though, as Christians, as much Christians in the room. With that said, right, he's, Paul said their destruction is our salvation. But see, that should not cause us to live a life of pride. Because at the same time, right, God desires that all men and women be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4. And that's why he called us to be his messengers in this world. Matthew 28. So we don't go out into the world with those that oppose us and even persecute us. We do exactly what the Apostle Paul did. They persecuted me, they opposed me, and I'm sitting here in prison, and I'm just going to keep telling them about Jesus. To live with that kind of courage and to be that fearless. That's the goal. That's the goal that's living a life worthy of the gospel i got to move on here. Verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, 
but also to suffer for him since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. So opposition, if you're opposed of, if you're persecuted, will eventually in some way lead to suffering. Now, in the United States of America, it's going to happen more so kind of mentally and emotionally. I haven't been flogged ever when I was a child by my dad, but I deserved it, right? But for my faith, no. But I've dealt with opposition and I've dealt with persecution. By the way, we probably, no, I didn't, okay, that's, I shouldn't say that. Okay, shh, okay. But you're going you're gonna to deal with some opposition and persecution. And it's going to hurt you a little bit emotionally. And it's going to hurt you a little bit mentally. In some way, that's suffering, isn't it? So the opposition will lead to suffering. But Paul literally wrote in this text that suffering is a blessing. It's a gift. I think most of us, if not all of us, we don't view suffering in that way. But suffering for the sake of the gospel is actually a privilege. Because when we persevere in the face of suffering and opposition, we actually grow closer to Jesus. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's all about growing closer to Jesus, maturing in him. Again, he's the thing. If it takes opposition, okay. If it takes suffering, fine. Whatever it takes, I want Jesus to be my all-consuming passion. And I'm praying that for you as well. Whatever it takes. Loss of your job, whatever it takes. Loss of income, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to get you to surrender everything to Jesus. He's the thing. He's not just another thing. He's it. Let me just close with a few words here. And the worship team can come up. But the kind of life that that lives a life worthy of the gospel. Let me just kind of sum it up here. Stands firm. Stands firm regardless of what's going on around you. A life worthy of the gospel pursues unity. Pursues unity. A life worthy of the gospel contends for the faith. Stands up for the faith in Christ. A life worthy of the gospel is Fearless in the face of opposition and suffering. Living in any other way, listen, living in any other way is a slight to Jesus and the gospel. He died for us. He rose from the dead for us. Now here's what's wild. To live a life worthy of the gospel you don't need to be like the Apostle Paul. We don't need to try to model ourselves after the Philippians. Like, obviously, we read the word, we're challenged by the word, but we don't want to follow Paul. We don't want to follow the Philippians. We want to follow Jesus. Amen? You need to, to be you. You need to do whatever you can to live for the name and the fame of Jesus. So what can you do to live for Jesus? Well, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> Follow Jesus and do you. Be you. 
Whatever gifts God has given you, use them for his glory. God desires that you take a step of faith today, even if it's a baby step. Live for him, but do so standing firm in the faith, united with other Christians in the Holy Spirit, and not being frightened by all the other stuff that's going on around you. That, let's be honest, you have no control of. But Jesus, the one you're following, does. And as you follow him, and as you make Jesus the thing in your life, that's where you find joy. And that's how you live in joy. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, you're good. And you're faithful. And we pray, God, that in every way you will show us what it means to live lives worthy of you. Help us, God, to stand firm in the faith, to be in step with the Spirit,